Hi, this is Karina Ganters, host of Behind the Pen, and you're listening to the audio podcast. Enjoy. You are with uh, Karina Gantas, the host of Behind the Pen. How's everyone doing? I am a award-winning author of 14 books. I have the podcast Narrations by KK and the audio podcast Behind the Pen, as well as the YouTube show Behind the Pen. And I also have my radio show, Author Assist, on the Artist First Radio Network. And I run Author Assist, which helps authors with their promotion and marketing of their books and everything in between. Today, my special guest on the show is Eric Goodman. Welcome to Behind the Pen, Eric. Thank you, Karina. Good to see you. Normally, I don't know anything about my guests. I've never met them. Don't know if they're a musician, if they're an artist. As long as they work with a pen, they're my guest. But we have talked before on my radio show So I know quite a bit about uh, your work. You are an author. Why don't you introduce yourself uh, and then we can uh, carry on from there? Yes. Um, Well, I continue to be Eric Goodman. I'm the author of six published novels, just about to finish uh, my seventh, uh, which is a sequel to one of my earlier novels, which is an interesting uh, thing because I've never done a sequel before and it's about the same family 25 years later. So we can talk about that sort of process, what that means. Um, I used to write a little bit for American television, Uh, you know, used to write for rock and roll bands and for a long time, primarily supported myself writing for lots of magazines, you know, wrote for lots of women's magazines when I was young and then became a travel writer with a specialty uh, of Southeast Asia, particularly Thailand in the mm. 80s and 90s. And, um, and then because it's hard to support yourself only as a writer, as I believe uh, KK knows, um, I was a professor of creative writing and directed a creative writing program, and then a low residency MFA at Miami of Ohio. Um, Now I just write full time and uh, it's easier to get more written when you're just not doing all those other things. Anything else, yeah, I get that. So what started you off? I mean, you said you first started writing for women magazines, freelancing, doing articles and stuff. What got you into writing? Was it because you thought, um, or or you enjoyed it, or you thought you could make some money from it, or you just happened to have this opportunity that turned into something bigger? How did it all start for you, Eric? Well, it all started because, you know, I love to read, you know, that, um, you know, as in high school, I was the, the 
fiction editor of my high school literary magazine mm-hmm. at, at Yale. I was the fiction editor of the Yale, Yale Daily News magazine. And I always thought it would be what maybe what I did on the side because uh, I was also pre-med at Yale. Oh, and wow. kind of finished, finished that. And then at the last moment decided if I kept this up, I'd be a doctor. Uh, so I withdrew my med school applications after I had applied and started getting interview offers. Um, did I ever think I could make a lot of money at it? No, in my, uh, um, in my, I hoped, in, but <laughs> we I, have all to, hope that. <laughs> I have to say in my Yale college yearbook, um, it said, you know, novelist as career Wow. But with a subtext, but I don't expect to live by it. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, I've, uh, but I have in a way, you know, I lived by my wits as writers must, you know, I had published two novels, you know, in my twenties mm. and was doing all those articles to afford to be a novelist. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, you not always, cheap. it's not cheap to be a novelist mm-hmm. and and it's really not cheap once you have children and a mortgage <laughs> <laughs> i want to go back to two things that you mentioned earlier first of all your um your uh, holiday tour um uh, writing uh, about thailand so i assume of course you'd been there and You've experienced oh, yeah. oh, you were writing about. Oh, of course. In in 1984, uh, my wife, uh, the real person, Susan Morgan, not the protagonist of Cuppy and Stew, my latest novel, had her first sabbatical. She 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 was we always thought was the real professor in the family with a PhD in everything, <laughs> and. Um, and we, we decided we had each traveled a good deal in Europe, you know, before we were a couple. And then we thought when she had a full year off with pay, we would go someplace new. And mm. this was fairly early on. And a good friend was the bureau chief for the New York Times for Southeast Asia. And we were living in California. Then we thought, oh, we'd go to Southeast Asia, but we did not know where to go. And so she said, well, if you have a baby, we had a 16-month-old son wow. at that point, you need to go someplace where there's, you can get good medical care in case the baby gets you know, amoebic dysentery because yeah. small bodies can dehydrate. So we ended up going to Chiang Mai, Thailand. That was one of the destinations because it has very good medical care and to Ubud, Bali. This was 1984. And because I, w- I said I was writing for all those women's magazines in the, before that, I knew lots of editors and, and told them that I was going to Southeast Asia and, and Americans didn't go to Southeast Asia very much then. <laughs> the British did. <laughs> the British did. When I got there, I found out that, yes, the British had been going, but my editor at GQ that I used to write for back then um, I, he, I got an assignment to write about Phuket, uh, mm-hmm. but th- he thought that it was called Fuck It. 
because that it's spelled more or less like that. <laughs> so, and and it was the first American magazine article about Phuket. Um, and so we we got there in the fall of '84, and I had I had a portfolio of assignments. And then we moved to Chiang Mai after we had traveled around. I, I wrote about Singapore and I wrote about KL and little, uh, and then we got to Chiang Mai, which is a beautiful city in the north of Thailand, the second largest city, as I'm sure you know. And we said, wow, we like really loved it. Mm-hmm. And then we began looking about for how we could keep going back to Thailand and Southeast Asia in general. And I began to, you know, for maybe eight or 10 years, we went every year and I would write articles. And my wife, who was a uh, 19th century British lit scholar, (laughs) her first book was Jane Austen. Her second book was The Convention of the Heroine about 19th century British literature. She kind of transitioned, she began writing about Victorian women travel writers in Southeast Asia. Wow. Of of which there were quite a few, you know. The Brits were out and about. Some of them were the wives of scientists, you know, uh, recapitulating the voyages of discovery. Some of them, you know, there was a white Raja of Sarawak, you know, (laughs) and, and, and so she then began writing about that because she was very good at getting academic grants. So really for and then, uh, because I wasn't a professor yet, we also began importing handicrafts from Thailand and Bali. Mm. Earrings from Bali and hand-embroidered pillows from Thailand. And for a few years, I'd gotten a little bit tired of writing for magazines because yeah. you know sometimes they pay you and sometimes they say, oh, we don't like this, we'll give you a kill fee which is 25% of what they promised you. Mm. So, so for a couple of years, I, I sold handicrafts with my Yale and Stanford degrees. I sold oh, handicrafts God. at street fairs. There you go. There you go. It just goes to show. Huh? I mean, yeah. I, I was in marketing and advertising um, before I came on holiday, met my husband. And I would uh-huh. never think that I'd be doing what I'm doing now because right. back then I was... I, I was settled and I was, you know, I, I just actually was given a, a promotion and um, I turned it down, of course, after I came back from my holiday. <laughs> um, but it just goes, I think it's all destiny. I think everything mm-hmm. that happens in your life happens for a reason and it makes you grow for whatever reason that is. Um, I want to, what we've got, 15 minutes. Well, I want to talk about... Um, your latest novel at the moment because this is what I love about this this novel Cuppy and Stew is that the first half is a historical fiction of how a couple have met fell in love and some of it um, is is known of what really happened and then some of it isn't um and then, of course, you've got that tragic uh, bombing of the flight, first flight uh, that was uh, bombed. And we'll talk about that. And then the second half of the book goes into actual fiction, but from memoirs of your wife mm-hmm. and what your wife and 
her sister went through after they lost their parents on the bombing. And um, that takes like, you, you've got the love story and then you go totally over to the other side to mm -hmm. the abuse that they suffered, the physical, the mental abuse, the way they were treated. Um, it's just to, to put it all into one book is just absolutely amazing. So I'm going to shut up now while um, you tell everyone uh, your way of uh, what the story is all about. Okay, well, Cuppy and Stu um, were names of my wife's parents. I, I never knew them, of course, because the subtitles of the book are The Bombing of Flight 629, A Love Story, and Flight 629 was a United flight out of Denver and um, a psycho put a bomb on the plane to kill his mother and killed everybody on the plane. It was the first um, major air piracy in the US. And uh, Susan Morgan, my wife, and Susan Morgan, the character, was 12 years old when this happened. Wow. And she and her older sister um, were then sent back to live in Vancouver with um, their mother's side of the family with their crazy grandmother who the will has specifically said they should not live with, but it turns out that once you're dead uh, and, and, and you're a kid, you know, you're at the mercy of the world. Um, and so uh, the second half of the book is, is about the five years that she, Susan Morgan lived in Vancouver, really in the Keynesian situation where, you know, physical and, and mental abuse, and then wanted to get away and go to college. But things had gone so badly with her family that uh, they'd become wards of the province, both of the girls. Fortunately, they were saved in a way by the fact that their parents had taken out uh, flight insurance as people did back in the 50s the, and this is and something so I wanted to ask you about whether because of their age whether they got that money or whether it, someone was supposed to be looking after the money until they came to the age of 18 and then they got the money but the other person ended up spending it all and they got nothing so I was wondering no. what happened with that Right. No, actually, the, the money was administered by the bank in Chicago. Their father was an engineer, and he had just started taking a new job in suburban Chicago three months before the plane crash. And the lawyer for that uh, engineering firm, you know, set up a, a trust at the, at the bank. Oh, wow, and that's so, good. Right. And so that was how Susan managed to go to college. She, um, she, because her parents had, and she were living near Chicago when the, when they died, she kind of always wanted to go back to Chicago. And really, I think, uh, she didn't understand that really at the, mm. at the time, you know, when you're a kid, she has new, she wanted to leave where she was because the circumstance was terrible and she actually met a boy on a camping trip when she was 17 and he was going to go to Northwestern. And he said, well, why don't you go to Northwestern? And so she did and he didn't because of the way things were in Canada and she was a ward of the province. They had said, you can't go to college even though she had her own money to 
pay for it. They said, you can't go to college, you have to get a job. And she, you know, was the smartest girl in her high school. She said, if you don't let me go, I'll run away. And finally, they relented. Her sister, however, ridiculous. Yes, well, her sister, however, you know, dropped out of school three or four months after the parents died at age 14. And her life was really transformed much for the worse. And the second half of the book is really a story of two sisters. You know, if you think about uh, what happens when a tragedy strikes and, you know, some people can survive it better than others. And Mm. Sherry, that was the name of Susan's older sister, really felt, even though she was only two years older, she felt responsible you know, for her younger sister. And so tried to protect her. And um, she was just a child herself. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, deeply in grief about the loss of her parents. And so um, their lives took different paths. And and Sherry died, you know, died 10 years ago, died in, you know, relatively young. And, really never got more than an eighth grade education. And whereas Susan got a PhD from the University of Chicago. Yeah, that's, that's, it's so sad the way they were together and looking after one another and then to go total separate ways and Mm -hmm. for, for one to not make it and one to go as high as she can get. I mean, that's, that's amazing what what Susan's done and uh, very brave to have uh, have gone through that again because when you have something that's very traumatic in your life and you try and put it away you you block it um, to actually start thinking about it again and going through it again it feels like it's happened all over again and that's um, I know from from being bullied um, through most of my schooling um, when I talk about it and I have to remember some of the really violent times that uh, it really gets to me. It's not something you forget. You do try and block it. But mm-hmm. in her case, when you started doing the book and she was reliving it again, I mean, how how did you help her with that? How did you well cope? There's a certain way in which, as you said yourself, she survived a little bit by repressing those memories, you know, uh, and there's a, there's a real way in which I've become the keeper of those memories, mm-hmm. you know, and writing about her beloved parents, bringing them back to life. Uh, um, I think, you know, it was really healing process. That her. would have been, yeah, that would have been the, the icing. That would have been the healing part of, of, of that um, going through that all again. But I mean, how many but, times did you, did you have to walk away from the story? Well, it must, it must have affected you as much as it oh, affected oh, abso- Susan. A- absolutely. The, um, I, you know, writing books, as you know yourself, you know, what you make up, in a certain way begins to overtake in a way the truth you know the truth becomes what you put on the page Mm. and so although the first half of the novel many of the events you know they 
Cuppy and Stu run away to South Africa. That is a fact. That's a fact, yeah. You know, the girls are born there. But all the events, you know, of how exactly how they ran away, you know, what their life was like in South Africa. I, I knew that her father was an engineer uh, in uh, the gold mines in South Africa, but I don't, didn't know any details. I knew what ship they came back on. Mm. They came back twice in South Africa, but the events, you know, I made up, you know, I made up the dialogue and the way that I tied the two halves of the story together for those people who are writers was that Susan Morgan, the character is telling her parents' story yeah. Um, you know, it's it's my my father did this, my mother did that, and then I kind of would would withdraw and be in the points of view of Cuppy and Stu during those first parts. Yeah. Uh, and so um, we went back to Vancouver. We had a look at the places where. Um, Susan had lived as a foster child. We went to the cemetery of her parents where she hadn't mm -hmm. been since the year after they died. Wow. So uh, that, of course, was very hard for her, but it was also, I think, healing to go back and, and yeah, see it. Most definitely. Um, you know, um, and so I... And there was a way in which, you know, I think Susan, um, we always used to say that, you know, she would go into a dark hole sometimes. And that was when she, and that's happened less since we've written the book. Um, really? That's amazing. Yes. I think that, um, that it has, you know. Face, placing it and letting it come out again has right. actually gave her some more closure to it. I think that's true. And also from her friends has given me great props. You know, they think what a good husband I am. And uh, just <laughs> uh, in, in, in May, uh, maybe it was late April, I learned that it's a finalist. Cuppy and Stu was a finalist for the Indies uh, Prize, you know, which book is prize. small, small book publication oh, wonderful. For, for, for fiction for the year 2020. Sometime, wow. so which which is great because you know, well, of course, um, awards are brilliant. I know that. Right. <laughs> yes, exactly. You it know, gives, it's, gives your book credibility, gives you mm -hmm. uh, credibility as an author, and it absolutely. also gives you more confidence, ready yes. to write your next one. That's right, and that and I, I, um, my next one, I'll, I'll be very brief. But I had a, a you know, I'm a Jew. And I'm a, a baseball fan. And my 1991 book, In Days of Awe, was about uh, set, it's a literary baseball novel published by Knopf and about a character named Jewish Joe Singer. And it's more about redemption than baseball. Yeah. The book that I'm finishing now is 25 years later. It's about Joe's son, Joe and his wife are still alive, but they're not in their 30s anymore. They're in their late 50s. And their son, Jess, it's his rookie season. And the backstory is that he's a closeted gay man and um, as he's going through that season. But as a writer, looking at people's lives 
25 years after I first wrote about them was a really very different um, act of imagination. Well, you know, because why though? Because you, you wrote that book and then you went on, you wrote that book and you wrote that book, The Cuppy and Stew. What made you have to go back and do a sequel to that book? What was, well, I know, I know they, sometimes they won't shut up and you can't sleep because they're mm -hmm. nagging at you that you need to write about them and get right. them down on paper. Was it one of those? Yes, I, I think it was also because as a longer I've written, what happens to more than one character is significant. I think when writers start writing, for the most part, it's a generalization, but I, I've mentored a lot of young writers. Often the, there's the protagonist and then everybody else, you know, like the love interest is like a reward, you know, but it's one person's story and everybody else is kind Smaller of secondary. characters, yeah. But in, in Days of Awe, um, even when I wrote that one, both Joe and his wife, Franny, and, and Joe's father, who had gotten him, who was kind of a, a shady figure, Joe, the, the, in that first book, Joe is suspended for maybe being involved with gamblers. But his father, Jack, who's in that world, was a very vital character as well. Mm. And, you know, sort of like, you know, they say about Milton's Paradise Lost that Milton was of Satan's party. And there was a certain way in which Jack was, um, who was a ladies' man, you know, was a very vital, even though he was even. Uh, and so at one point I had started writing a book in which he was the main character called Viagra Jack. Because Viagra he was, Jack. <laughs> but I, I set that aside. But so they had, the people had stayed in my head quite a bit. And um, one of my other novels, Child of My Right Hand, is, is about raising an openly gay son uh, my son is gay. And so I, and I love baseball. And so I wanted to combine these two yeah. things, baseball and the issue of, of manhood or masculinity. Um, and being forced to closet yourself because of the right. repercussions of who he was and how people would react if they found right. out. Because, you know, somehow, you know, to be, you know, a major sports figure, it's, you know, you're not supposed to be gay. Yeah, and butch. so, butch. right, you got to be butch, you yeah. know, and it's odd because, you know, in the women's sports world, you know. <laughs> there are loads that, of butch that, women. <laughs> that, that, that's right. So it's not the case. So it's fine. You know, it's, it's everybody accepts the fact, you know, that, you know, women footballers or, you know, women basketball players that, mm -hmm. that many of them are gay and, and mm -hmm. doesn't mean you can't be a good athlete no, because of who you sleep with. Exactly. But at least in America, you know, it's, it's kind of unthinkable in its way that you I'm should be I'm glad that you, you wrote about that, uh, that. I mean, it's still, we are, we are getting more, um, more accepted of uh, LGBTQ compared to how we were 10 years oh, ago. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, but there are still, I mean, I know for a fact there's uh, pop stars that are closeted because of who they are. And they've right. had contracts, basically, if you come out, 
will sue you for every penny. Really? And and they are forced to live with pretending they have girlfriends, having mm-hmm. photographs being with a girl when in fact right. they're married to another guy and they have to keep mm-hmm. it quiet. And of course, as fans, I won't say who they are, but as fans who know what's going on, um, right. we get we get the clues. We get they keep on giving us clues to let us know right. that everything is still okay between them. You know, mm-hmm. so that's amazing. But it's horrible to think that in this day and age, it still goes on. And yes, they mm-hmm. they force people to become someone they're not, and that shouldn't. That's not right. Right. I agree. I agree. You know, there there are there are much more important issues in the world than you know who somebody loves. Yes, and, of course. You know the things that the world needs to work on, and that's not one of them. But it is true that being around a university for you know many years in the U.S., I would say, you know, for the college students, even though the university where I taught many of the students were pretty conservative. They just didn't care anymore. By 20, 2010, by 2012, uh, it, that issue was just kind of over for them. Yeah, it's accepted. I mean, yeah, we say it's accepted. It's accepted a lot more than it was 10 years ago, but there are still right. too much, oh, yes. too many barriers to... That's right. Too much... Um, uh, homophobia. Oh, thank you. Homophobia. From from anything from trans to pan to um, gender to whatever I mean, there's so many names and so many flags out there now. I just I, I get I get lost of uh, what what now. But to me, I it doesn't bother me at all. It never has done, and it never will do. And um, I say God bless to everyone and uh, love who you want to love. That's what I say. Amen, sister. <laughs> Um, uh, what I want to say, yes, um, wanted to give you a bit of marketing advice while we're online. Mm-hmm. Um, with this new book, when it's released, are, are you self-published or are you with a publisher? No, um, <clears throat> no, I've never self-published. Um, C- Cuppy and Stu was with a small press. Mm-hmm. I have an agent and because, um, in Days of Awe, the, the first book mm-hmm. about the Singer family was published by Knopf, you know, one of the major U.S. publishers. Yeah. I think he's hope. I think he's hoping that um, he'll find a you know a large publisher again. It's hard to say, you know, if if um, it's since it'd be very very difficult because it is a sequel to have one publisher mm-hmm. with that book and another publisher. It's a shame it can't come together because I would. As, as a marketer myself, I would say you don't market your new release. It's not a standalone. You market mm-hmm. these books together. Right. Yes. You know, Good. and what's difficult about that is whether you get a publisher for, uh, for this um, second book or you do it yourself. Right. Well, the second book is called Curveball. I like because, that. Yes, because... There's a certain way, you know, there's, there's the idea that life, you know, can throw you a curve and here, here you are a big manly man, but you're, you're also a closeted gay man who throws a great curveball. 
I like that. How do you come up with your titles for your books then? How easy is it? Oh, I've gotten better at it now. <laughs> um, I, I think Curveball is quite a good title. I love it. And and Cuppy and Stew, uh, I so like unique. that also. And I so came unique. up with that. Yeah. But for many of my earlier novels, because Cuppy and Stew is my sixth book, um, other friends had to, had to come up with titles. Sometimes my editor, that they'd say, oh, that's terrible. You know, <laughs> so... You can't, you can't call it that. And, and then, you know, I, I'd sulk a little bit, but I, then I knew they were right. Like the, um, my first book was called, uh, I, I wanted to call it The Enthusiast, but it ended up being called High on the Energy Bridge, which is a better, better book title. And, okay. um, and I think the one book, I wanted to call, I was calling Simon's song mm -hmm. and it came out as child of my right hand. That's the one Which about the totally raising a gay yeah. son, right? Child of my right hand is from a poem. You know, it's, it, um, it references that <clears throat> it, it, uh, somebody whose son dies. The, the son in my book does not die, however. Mm -hmm. So okay. I like Simon's song though. I do like that title. Now, I like that too. Yeah. yeah but you know, I, I was easy to push around on, on the title. <laughs> of course, you do exactly what they tell you once you get that right. contract. Well, right. Erica, it's been such a pleasure finally meeting you and chatting with you again more about what you do. It's been such a, yes. a, a wonderful time talking with you. Can you tell our listeners and, of course, our watchers, because this is an audio podcast as well after, where they can find you and your books? Yes. Um, my website is eric-goodman.com. It's easy to find me. The book uh, is available, uh, of course, on the big A, Amazon. Mm -hmm. And it's also... Um, spdbooks.org is the nonprofit distributor. Uh, they're based in uh, the Bay Area where I live half the year. I'm talking to you from upstate New York, but when it's cold here, I'm in Sonoma yes. County. My model <laughs> for where to live is someplace beautiful where there's a good wine industry. So, <laughs> I love my glass of wine. Well, it's yes. been such a a great uh, pleasure chatting with you, Eric. I wish you all the best with your new book and I hope the two um, sell really well together and um, that Thank you get you. loads of really good reviews and people understand what why you're writing about it and how important the topic is. And, Thank you uh, very much. I wish you all the best with anything else that you come up with as well. Okay, and you too. And this Thank is a you. good show that you're doing. Thanks for doing it. Thank you so much. That means a lot.